TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to the Permanent Record on the Road. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. In the next two episodes, we're going to share a couple of conversations we had on a recent trip to Nashville. First up is Reverend Jeannie Alexander. She's a longtime friend of Just City, and she managed our Nashville Community Bail Fund through its uh, formative first year. More importantly, though, Jeannie is a vocal advocate for prison reform in Tennessee. She leads No Exceptions Prison Collective, a group made up of attorneys, advocates, people with prior contact with the prison system, and people on the inside. Their work is especially critical in a state like Tennessee, which continues to see an increase in its prison population. It grew 10% between 2010 and 2015 one of a very few number of states still experiencing prison population growth. An ordained minister, Jeannie also shared with us some of her experiences at cha- as chaplain at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison in Nashville, home to Tennessee's death row. She shared her thoughts on what it's going to take to change our state's outlook on crime and punishment. We sat down with Jeannie at the offices of the Nashville scene. Thanks for joining us on The Permanent Record, Jeannie Alexander. Uh, tell us where... You grew up. Hi, Josh. Uh, so I grew up in Atlanta. Atlanta, Georgia. So, yeah, I'm a Southern girl. Um, grew up in Atlanta. Actually grew up pretty close to a Trappist monastery. Hmm. Uh, with a bunch of really cool monks who had learned transcendental meditation from Hindu monks in the 70s. And so they taught me lots of cool things. How did you get in touch with the monks? Like, did your parents just let you walk up to the monastery? Well, yeah. I mean, like, you know, they're your neighbors. And so if you wanted... Uh, like they made bread and they were very hospitable and, um, and they had peacocks that at one point Flannery O'Connor had donated, at least the progeny of peacocks. And so I got bit on the ass by a Flannery O'Connor peacock when I was a kid. And I think that was a moment of enlightenment maybe. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeannie. That, I'm kidding. Um, I don't know if we're going to top that in terms of podcast stories. Uh, Georgia State. Yeah. Undergrad. So you, so you stayed close to home. Mm-hmm. Um, and at any point before that or during your undergraduate studies, did you, when did you first become aware of, of sort of prison, like as a, as a concept or, or as a, as a place that people went, when did that enter your consciousness? Uh, well, not really an undergrad. I mean, an undergrad, my intention was to become a physical anthropologist and move to Uganda and work with mountain gorillas. Wow. So, my, how things have, have um, t- taken a turn. Yes. I mean, that really became... I became more aware of that. Um, well, I went from undergrad to law school kind of accidentally. I had no desire to go to law school and took the LSAT kind of on a whim and did well and then got into a good law school. And then um, I became more aware of uh, prison issues and much more aware of um, justice issues surrounding prison, um, representing some women and Dallas, which is where I practice law, um, who were homeless and cycling in and out of homelessness and had needs, representation needs. Um, so I guess that was initially when I first became aware, but not like really when I super became aware. So. Did you uh, go straight into law school from undergrad or how, how long of a gap did you take? So I took my gap in undergrad. I kind of went on walkabout for about a year and a half, um, trying to figure out really what I wanted to do. Um and not having the pressure of getting, you know, through undergrad as quickly as possible, but getting through it with some meaning 
you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and so probably took, like I said, about a year and a half to two-year gap. But then when I went back, then I did go straight into law school from undergrad. And you uh, got a job in Dallas mm-hmm. at a firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of law were you practicing? <laughs> um, corporate trial law. <laughs> so the complete opposite of what I do now. I mean, I uh, so... Billable our, hours, the whole deal. Really nice offices. Yeah. I mean, our clients were oil companies. I mean, everyone from Halliburton to oh my. Kinley. Um, yeah. You represented Halliburton. <laughs> I was not on the Halliburton team. Let's clarify. <laughs> but they were our client. I mean, so yeah. I mean, it was just um, complicated, complex corporate litigation from the defense perspective. Sure. And so, but in your spare time, I guess you were working with women experiencing homelessness in, in Dallas? Yeah. Um, that to some degree, and then also with an organization, Center for Survivors of Torture mm-hmm. as well. And so we represented folks um, who were seeking asylum for political reasons. Um, and the more I became aware of unjust economic structures and the way that the system was such a disservice to so many people at the bottom of that system who were being stepped on by that system, increasingly pro bono work wasn't enough. That wasn't going to work. So what'd you do? What was that transition like from the corporate law firm into sort of the activism that you're involved in now? So I became increasingly active with um, everything for more global demonstrations, anti-G8 stuff. Um, And then eventually just uh, went in and told my managing partner one day that I was putting my house on the market. And as soon as it sold, I was leaving. And I I didn't know what I was going to do, but I couldn't do this anymore. And they thought I was nuts. And my how many years had you been nuts. there? Um, about five. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, so that was a, a very secure position. But I ended up going back to the monastery. That's where back I went. In Georgia. Yeah. So I went back and um, probably spent a year in mostly contemplation, hanging out with the monks. Yeah. And then that's when I did a master's in religious studies. And that's when I got involved with the Catholic worker movement and really dug into prison issues and visiting George's death row and seeing the, you know, the stark and obvious connections between poverty and homelessness in prison and jail and, and just jumped full in and never have never gotten out since. Yeah. And you, and you ended up in Tennessee. How long have you been in Nashville or in the middle Tennessee area? Ten years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And did you, so you went back for a master's, you mentioned, uh, are you ordained? I am. By which church? So I'm ordained by, it was an independent community church, a Mm non-denominational community church Mm -hmm. in Atlanta, Mercy Community Church. And Mercy, I don't know, at the time probably had about a hundred members. And I would say close to 80% of that membership, um, they were experiencing homelessness. And so... So my introduction to like ministry and ordination ministry and like being involved in that was like church was the people, not an institution. And it was a lived experience, whether it was being lived on the streets or in an emergency room or a jail or a crack house or wherever else it was. Um, And um, that was very intentional, too. That was I felt like that that group of people had the authority to ordain. Yeah, and it's still in Georgia, though, this church. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, right. absolutely. Uh, I mean, but that's where this happened yeah. to you. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Um, and they're well worth supporting if you're in the Atlanta area. They say the name it. again? Uh, Mercy Community Church. Got it. Um, yeah. Um, and, and so back in back to Nashville, I know you have uh, 
been the chaplain at Riverbend Maximum Security, which is uh, right. where Tennessee's death row is. Was that a position that was compensated? Was that a volunteer position? Are you, were you employed by the TDOC? Tell, <laughs> tell us when that, when was that first? Okay. So that was from 2009 to 2014. So it was five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and initially it was not compensated, compensated. I mean, I went in as a volunteer chaplain, um, never any intention of working for the state, certainly no intention of working for the prison system. I mean, I went in as an abolitionist. Um, I mean, I couldn't even you know, like as a, as a death penalty abolitionist and as someone who um, opposed mass incarceration. And, and I never hid that and I never hid my politics. Now, are you – so you say abolitionist. That can mean a few things and you just said death penalty abolition, of yeah. course. Do you also subscribe to the abolition of prisons? Is that is that something that you would uh, say that you are you believe in? Yeah. So I think what um, is accurate to say is that we support the abolition of mass incarceration, got it, got it. right? And this rolling back of this 600% increase we've seen in the past 30 years and the abolition of prisons as they exist today uh, from a structural and a programmatic sort of perspective, you know, um, from this purely punitive um, with a total dearth of any sort of substantive programming um, with ridiculously long sentences. Um, I think that there are models that exist that are far superior to ours. And so the way that the American penal system looks today, yes, we are, support the abolition yeah, of that yeah. because there's a better way. So, I got you. so you're River Bend and you're the chaplain. You end up becoming a, an employee. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. what is your, what is your, what's the job description? What, what does it look like to be a chaplain in Tennessee at, a, at the maximum security prison? So, um, and if I can say just really quickly, like prior to becoming an employee, I mean, like I was opposed to it. And some of the guys on death row came to me after one of our classes one night and said, you have to apply for this position. If you don't, you have no idea what kind of person could take it and how much damage could be done. They're like, if you were to take it, at least we know that you would bring in volunteers. And that's just it. I mean, prisoners want to be seen. They want to be heard. And so... Eventually, I did apply and thought there's no way they're going to hire an ex-attorney. I mean, who the hell? What prison's going to hire a lawyer to send an end to the prison and work? I mean, that, that's going to disqualify me. And it didn't, you know. And, and in fact, the award at the time wanted someone who would expand programming. So what it looked like under my chaplaincy was that it grew from like 20-something programs a month to over 80 regular and then additional special programming. And we had about 300 volunteers. Um and that went really, really well until Tennessee prisons as a whole experienced a culture shift, I think is one way to describe it yeah. under um, Derek Schofield. Got it. And it, for not for the better, in your opinion? No, yeah. I don't think for the better in anybody's opinion who understands what's going on. Right. Um, give us an example of that at Riverbend. Like what kinds of things did you experience when that transition happened? So, and it happened like gradually over time, like it's so it became increasingly more difficult to continue running programming over the course of about a year and a half. Money or just culture? No, no, no. Just um, the prison system adopting more of a hostile view toward volunteers and toward programming. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, prior to Schofield coming in, it was not unusual for like long term volunteers to advocate on behalf of prisoners. Um, that became just prohibited under that Schofield administration. We began seeing like a shift to a much more uh, militaristic Mm -hmm. and punitive model. Mm -hmm. So, for example, let's say that you were a prisoner and you had a child on the outside and they sent you a 
a drawing that they had done. Like in the past, you could have hung that on your cell wall. Well, that was completely prohibited, you know, at this point. I mean, and just it goes on and on. We could spend an hour talking about the crazy way that the system began to deteriorate and as a result began uh, hemorrhaging staff, um, which also contributes to destabilized prisons. Right. And was there um – well, let, let's. I want to talk a little bit about about death row. I mean, was one component of your job specifically uh, directed at the men on death row? Sure. I mean, it's a chaplain for the whole prison, and I went in initially as a volunteer specifically for guys on death row. And Tennessee hasn't executed anyone since when? Oh God, has it been two thousand and ten? I think that's right. I think it has been. Cecil Johnson, what was Cecil Johnson? And you were there at the time. And I was there and I knew Cecil and Cecil was someone who I considered a friend. Yeah. So what is that like? What do you, what did you feel like your job was for Cecil and and those men around him? I mean, how do you, I mean, it's a darkness, it's hopelessness. It's, uh, I can't imagine. So how did you, where did you, what did you do and how did you draw strength and, and do something like that? So... From our perspective, my perspective and his perspective and, and the perspective of the guys on death row, that place was to um, hold space and hold love in a place where there was no love. In fact, there was the active desire to kill that person. Right. Um, and I thought that it was incredibly important that there be someone there constantly who they knew did not want to see them dead. Someone who wasn't after their life, who didn't think that any damage caused by their crime could somehow be answered and made whole by a state-sanctioned murder. Yeah. What did Cecil Johnson, what was he accused of doing? What was he convicted of doing? So Cecil was convicted of, uh, as I recall, was um, robbing a convenience store, I believe. Um, And I don't remember if it was one or two people who were killed as a result, you know. Um. But the Cecil Johnson that I knew uh, wasn't the same person who had committed that crime, mm-hmm. you know, 20 plus years before. Um, because, I mean, that's just the thing about humans is we constantly change or evolve. I mean, this is yeah. the notion of redemption and whether or not we actually believe in it. And so, um, so the person that they killed wasn't a person who would have committed that crime and was not the same person who did. Right, um, right. You, uh, you've mentioned volunteers a couple of times. You know, we, we people ask all the time. You know, what they can do. We get offers for volunteers all the time. And um, how easy it is, is it today to get involved at a prison in Tennessee? Very difficult. So, I mean, we're really. I mean, we're just connected, well connected, still with volunteers in Nashville and volunteers in other areas of the state. And um, so our yeah, I mean, so I guess our prison connections run throughout the entire state, and it's the same story everywhere. Is that it is increasingly difficult to become a volunteer in Tennessee prisons. That doesn't mean that listeners who want to volunteer should be dissuaded. It means just understand you're going to have to be persistent and dig in and continue to try to volunteer. Are there other things? What means the most to the men and women in prison in Tennessee? Uh, aside from, I mean, you've mentioned classes, you've mentioned you know volunteers on site, chaplains people who care what what can people do from outside is there is there a thing that 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 uh, folks who are locked up appreciate more than other things and that we can do well i mean i'm really reticent to speak and say well this is what they would say but because i mean our board members include insiders and members of our collective are on the inside as well i mean um and from my experience you know what people care about is 
maintaining their humanity. Yeah. Right. Having people outside understand not it's not that people are looking for excuses or they want a free pass or think, oh, you know, if someone did X, Y or Z, then it shouldn't matter. That's not it. But for people to stop thinking that they're not redeemable, but th- that their life isn't worth anything and that it's OK to lock someone up in a cage for the rest of their life, you know, to just understand that there is a human in that metal yeah. box, yeah. not a number and not a statistic, but there, there is a human. There's somebody's father or daughter or mother or son in that box. Um, and to support um, reform efforts in this state, for God's sake, there are some good reform efforts taking place. I mean, and, and just sentencing reform, but also reform concerning internal conditions. Um, prisoners want independent oversight. Okay, over the Department of Correction, they want more eyes, independent eyes on what's happening inside the prison. So, I mean, query, why is it that we have a billion dollar a year department in the state with absolute control over 30, almost 30,000 human lives? And there is no independent oversight. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So you, I think we got a little ahead of ourselves. You, no, no, that's fine. <laughs> you just mentioned the collective, and I wanted to establish that. I mean, it's obviously in the title and in the intro, but the No Exceptions Prison Collective mm-hmm. uh, is what you direct now. Tell mm-hmm. us a, about that. How it's, how it's organized? You referenced having members uh, of the collective, uh, you know, on the inside. Tell us how that's structured and what what its mission is. I mean, you're talking about the work, so sure, like absolutely. So, I mean, the way that's structured is it is a collective, and it's a collective effort between current insiders. Uh, we use the terminology either insiders or prisoner. We don't use the term inmate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, current insiders, family members of insiders, um, and then on the outside. Clergy, lawyers, professors, advocates. Um, So it's a pretty broad spectrum of individuals involved. And we have three focus areas. um, And one is sentencing reform. uh, The other is internal conditions. And then the third focus area is reform of the parole board. And we do our work through legislation, legislative efforts, litigation, um, grassroots organizing. And then education is a huge part. And by education, I mean educating people on things like the history of Tennessee prisons and sentencing laws, but then also educating family members how they can become better advocates on behalf of their loved ones on the inside. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's. Um, I don't want to get too wonky, but you mentioned uh, parole eligibility and reform of that. Uh, you know, for people who haven't been in the criminal justice system as long as we have, there's something in Tennessee called a release eligibility date for every crime, and depending on the level of crime and your criminal history, you get. Uh, assigned a percentage usually when you're sentenced somewhere between 30 and and 85 percent. And so uh, as I understand it and uh, that you're not represented at the at the parole board at a parole hearing. So so say walk us through that. So you you get to your release eligibility date and what determines when you meet the parole board and how does that look and and what should change about it? Um, oh, you don't have time for this. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I guess the, the bottom line is, I think the easiest way to answer this is to say, you know, there's no, the parole board is accountable to the governor, period. I mean, that's who they're appointed by. That's who they're accountable to. And so it's pretty opaque, too, as far as understanding how those decisions are made. Supposedly, there's a rubric depending on the crime. And I mean, there certainly is a... A necessary number of votes for someone to be paroled. Um, How large is the parole board? But, oh, God, what is that at right now? 
I don't remember. I don't want to give you the wrong number off the top. Yeah, no, no, no. It's it's not that large or smaller than that. uh, Yeah, it's relatively small. And I mean, and I think that, yeah, I mean, it's relatively small. And and a panel that hears someone's specific case is three? Right. And so, well, one. I mean, when you first go, yeah, I've never attended a parole hearing where there was more than one member present. And what will happen at that hearing is basically um, the person is retried. I mean, you go right back into the facts of the case. And then what they've done since that time, since they were incarcerated, sort of programming, that sort of thing is considered. Um, their behavior record in the prison is considered. And then, you know, a decision is made. And I will say that one thing that I've heard in a couple of parole hearings recently that made me, that made me hopeful, and these were parole hearings for lifers, uh, the question was, was posed by the parole board member, you know, our biggest concern is do you still... Or do you constitute a present threat to society? And if you do not, then of what value is it to continue to hold you? And and that actually gave me some hope. Unfortunately, there's nothing that says that this is what you should consider. Is this person – do they continue to be a threat? So so that when you talk about reform, writing that into law could – Right. Would be fantastic. Unfortunately, what we hear so often is even if someone is like 13 years past their parole eligibility date initially – um, we've heard, you know, the response, well, due to the seriousness of the offense, you know, we are not going to release you at this time. I mean, I've been at parole board hearings literally where the person up for parole had taken every program they ever could have. They had done 26 years on a life sentence. They had a full scholarship to a college here in Nashville. They had housing. They had employment with a well-known national organization as an organizer. There was nothing that could have been more perfect, and the parole board members said, we could ask nothing more from you. But due to the seriousness of the offense, we're going to put you <laughs> off for a year. I mean, it was insane. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> what? The, so we've, I think, established the problem. Um, you, what do you think it's going to take uh, to put Tennessee on a different trajectory? Or, or I don't – it's probably not fair to put Tennessee in, into – uh, a special place, uh, I think, as a country, as a society, um, we're we probably have uh, pretty close opinions of of who prisoners are and who people in our jails and prisons what they represent. So, um, you know, you're a minister, you've uh, obviously got a faith, um, you know, a center that drives you uh, to help change this system. What what what's the fundamental thing that that we need to to see, uh, and you referenced, you know, seeing people with dignity and, and as human beings, but, um, you know, what, what, what's it going to take to really get movement on this, to get people, uh, who don't have a loved one behind bars to care mm-hmm. for people who have never been there themselves to care? Um, right. I think that's a great question. And I don't think there's one answer to right, it. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think that, uh, I do think it is a faith issue. I think it is a moral issue. I think it is a civil rights issue. Um, I think that one of the things we have to do is overcome a myth that's been perpetuated by everyone from politicians to private prisons to the private industries that profit from prison. And that myth is that there are two point almost three million Americans who are so scary and such a threat to you. We have to keep them in cages. Um, It's just nonsense. And I think that what we have to do is meet this cultural lie with the truth. And to Which continue speaking Which, uh, that truth. So with people who are in, in our prisons, some of them have done violent things to other people. Right. Absolutely. I'm not just any. I think the worst thing you can do to any marginalized group is to romanticize them. 
So I'm not talking about innocence. I'm not saying we have prisons that are full of nothing but innocent people. I want to talk about the hard cases where someone right. isn't innocent. They are guilty of exactly what right. they were convicted of. And the question is, what is in the best interest of society? Is it in the best interest of society to want someone to be rehabilitated, to find a way for redemption, to heal, to respond to whatever crisis caused that crime? Because if we continue to look at crime as an individual action and not look at it systemically and not understand everything that goes into particularly violent crime, right? Like murder is one example. I mean, it is a complicated crime. It's a very unique, unique crime. There's a reason why people convicted of first degree murder had the lowest rates of recidivism, you know, until we are honest about that, um, we aren't going to change. And so Again, I mean, I think this requires education. I think it requires challenging people's faith, what they claim to hold as a faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think the national conversation has shifted. Mm-hmm. I do think, despite November's elections, I think that we are still, and that's not a that's not a Republican Democrat comment. Okay, that's not a partisan comment because whatever Trump is. He's not defined by Republicans or the Democrats that I know as a general rule, right? right? I mean, so I think. The national conversation has still shifted. I think people are beginning to become more aware. Um, and also, I think, you know, as much as I wish we didn't have to talk about this, we do from a practical economic perspective. This is untenable. I yeah, mean, yeah, this yeah, I is absurd. Right. I mean, we have a prison industrial complex that's making certain individuals and groups very wealthy and is becoming a financial burden on taxpayers that doesn't make rational sense that we can't continue to bear. Yeah. And it's continuing to destroy and destabilize communities. Yeah. Um, you have a tattoo on your arm that says, nothing holy is tame. <laughs> Tell me uh, what that means to you and, and how that informs your, uh, oh, your work at No Exceptions. Oh, gosh. Of all the tattoos you could have picked out. Um, <laughs> as I, I think I told you earlier that I think No Exceptions is the punk rock version of Just City. Oh, wow. um, so, like, your listeners can't see, but you guys are here in nice suits and everything, and I'm in my Doc Martens and tattoos. Um, so nothing holy is tame. Um, yeah, this is an existentialist conversation. That's you need what to have me hoping. back for a second time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's this notion that um, when we talk about faith, I think that we have, and I'm going to speak from like a like a sort of a Judeo-Christian perspective or Christian's perspective that. In America, this has become something that's been neatly defined and put in a box, and God has been made very safe and very predictable and very conservative American. I mean, it's this bizarre thing. Um, And um, holy things, in my experience, and certainly prison was the example of this, holy things occur in liminal spaces, in borderlands, in places that are complicated and painful and dark sometimes. Whatever is holy isn't safe, not that I've witnessed. It's not tame. It isn't predictable. Um, it's not going to show up at a Rotary Club meeting, typically speaking, you know. And it's um, it's something that's going to challenge us and stretch us and bring us to a higher place if we'll allow that through love and even pain sometimes. Wow. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Um, well, um, I'd like to end on that, I think. Thank you very much Thanks, for joining Josh. us. That was a great answer. And sorry to spring it on you like that. No, it's okay. We will have you back because I think there's a whole lot more to explore. <laughs> about all this. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You guys guys do great work. Thanks. 
That was Reverend Jeannie Alexander in conversation and on the permanent record. You can find out more about Jeannie and No Exceptions Prison Collective at noexceptions.net. My thanks to her for taking some time to chat with us. Thanks, as always, to Gilworth and the OAM Network for providing support and distribution of The Permanent Record. They're the best podcast network in Memphis. Check them out at theoamnetwork.com or the next time you're at Crosstown Concourse. They have a brand new studio there. Special thanks to Steve Cavendish and the staff at the Nashville Scene for letting us record in their space. You can keep up with all things Nashville at nashvillescene.com. They've got its city covered like a blanket. As usual, thanks to Jeff Hewlett for She Got Gone, original theme music for The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Watch for our new website, just launched, justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure you subscribe to The Permanent Record on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to you, we have over 2,300 subscribers on Apple Podcasts. But don't stop now. Give us a rating. Leave us a review. It helps us build our audience. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.